0: Or listening to sermon audio from Christ Church Le legrand okay so we are uh, beginning uh, mark chapter 8 um, it is uh, in some ways a little bit difficult to to emphasize enough the importance of mark 8 of this chapter in, in Mark's gospel so if we if we look at this this book this writing uh, of uh, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, if we look at it for a moment as literature, and, and it's, it's more than literature, it's certainly not less than literature, but it's, it's more than that, um, we've, we've reached roughly the midpoint. Mark began his book in this, with this wilderness backdrop and, and this, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is how he started. Jesus shows up arriving to meet the people of God in this historically significant setting in the wilderness. And then, and then story after story after story that Mark links together tightly one after another. This, the pace is fast and his language is, is sharp and is blunt. And, and, and he shows us Jesus as a man here on purpose, on mission with stuff to do, a man of action. And by the beginning of chapter 3, the Pharisees and those who were sympathetic to to Herod were already plotting his destruction. Jesus was a scandalous figure. We've seen over and over in, in this study. He was a scandalous figure who mixed willingly, who drew to himself the wrong kind of people. And you didn't do that as a good Jew Jesus called people to himself, to follow himself, and and you didn't do that. Only God could forgive sins, and yet Jesus presumes to do so. He taught with authority that, that came from himself, out of his being, and no one did that. Only God could rebuke demons and disease and the forces of nature and they obey him. So if we take him at his word, he is no less than the son of God. God's complete self-revelation, self-disclosure, to borrow that quote from Tozer, God's self-revelation to mankind in terms that we can understand. This is God invading our world to establish his kingdom. So in all of the scandal and the stir that surrounded Jesus, there's one constant that's, that, that's carried us through is that he was constantly over and over misunderstood. Constantly misunderstood, even by his own disciples who missed it. Again and again and again, he was here to do something so massive, something so beyond human conception That it was hidden, hidden to faithless eyes and faithless ears. Mark chapter 8 shows Jesus himself beginning beginning to pull back the curtain, beginning to to lift the veil a little bit. So let's read the text. We're in Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. In those days... How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "'Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation.' And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side this uh, the first story seems uh, somewhat familiar, right? It seems like maybe maybe we've we 've heard this one before. Jesus in a desolate place with a crowd of people that don 't have food, and he multiplies bread and fish, and they all eat. It seems like we 've heard that one before, so before we dig in very deeply, just to address that, um, there has been historically, among scholars, some dispute about this, that, that maybe perhaps Mark is just sort of repackaging the feeding of the 5,000 from chapter 6, and he kind of repackaged that story over here in chapter 8, kind of a different setting, changed a few details, you know, like some really crappy sequel movie or something. But there's, there's remarkable similarities in some of this, but there's, there's too many differences There's too many specifics. There's so much that is different here. So I'm not going to run down all of the scholarly reasons and the history and the language. All of those things. uh, But we should read this the way Mark wrote it. Suffice to say, we should read this the way Mark wrote it. As a separate event in a different place among different people for a different reason. This is... One of the many instances we've seen in Mark where um, he records a story of Jesus' ministry and the Spirit of God then working through Mark through his own vocabulary and word choice and writing style. And then he stacks up or, or pairs it with another story that gives us a contrast to show us Mark has proven himself to be a brilliant storyteller to show us Jesus in action, this God who became man and is active in in our world. So to to pull just a little bit in from last week to set up again the the context and the setting here, Jesus has been primarily in, in Gentile territory. Uh, beginning in, in chapter 7, verse 24, he headed north up through Tyre, then he continued north up through Sidon, and this big 120-mile round-trip, roundabout journey to get to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where he is here. And, and, and scholars, historians have, have tried to chart this out in the time frame, and as much as eight months on this journey that he's been traveling in non-Jewish lands, historically pagan lands. Out of those eight months, Mark records three stories. The first is this desperate woman in chapter 7 with a bad reputation. And she's the first person to understand one of Jesus' parables, to understand what he's trying to teach through his parable and demonstrates this simple, humble kind of faith by entering into The parable that Jesus is teaching, seeing her place in it and trusting in the abundance of Jesus and trusting in the orderliness of a sovereign God. And her daughter is delivered from unclean spirits. Then last week we looked at the deaf, mute man, hopeless, outcast, separated. There's there's a few people that love him that bring him to Jesus, but he's unable to even ask for help. And unable to hear And Jesus leans in close, draws him aside, responding with visible compassion. And Mark then subtly, in his own way, in his own style, just beautifully showed us Jesus as the Lord that Isaiah wrote about. The mute will sing and dance and the rivers will flow through the desert, we read from Isaiah. So there's a day coming. There was a, there's a day coming when, when that gut-wrenching sigh that Jesus showed this man, that, the compassion that, that made him gasp deeply, there's a day coming when that wouldn't be necessary anymore. When the Lord would arrive and begin to undo the curse. And then this week, Jesus miraculously feeds another crowd this time in Gentile territory. And then he faces immediate opposition from his own people. From that eight-month journey, Mark records just, just three stories, just three events, and that, that tells us something. This, is, this should help us in, in the way that we approach Scripture of what's actually here, why is it here, what did Mark as the author want us to see He's more concerned about us, about his readers seeing Jesus for who he is than just telling us a bunch of things that Jesus did. He wants us to know him, to draw near to Christ, the person of Jesus. He's more concerned with that than just telling us some things that Jesus did. So this week, this pair of contrasting stories one on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory one on the west side when he returns to his own people these stories begin to to pull back the veil they begin to open the curtain a little bit on what Jesus is here for we get a chance to see from this what faith looks like and what it doesn't um laundry. Uh, I don't think anybody, like, loves doing laundry. Laundry is one of those things, for me, it seems like um, I have this tendency to try to stuff things into the washer, and somehow or another, uh, something gets messed up. (laughs) You get a red sock in with all of the white socks, you you know, the wrong color sweatshirt goes in with something, or you're not supposed to put that kind of soap with the thing. I... Somehow or another, something always gets messed up. But just thinking about the way like one new red sock in, in an entire load of white shirts and white socks colors the whole load. When you open the door, you can't, this, you can't look at them as simple white socks and white shirts anymore. It doesn't allow you to see them that way. They're not the same after that. There, there's a similarity uh, in, in this study of Mark that, that that as, G, as Mark is telling of Jesus' life and, and ministry, one of the things that, that keeps this exciting continually is each week it's like, what, what am I going to find in here? What, what, what am I going to see that, that begins to color this whole story? So you study the passage and, and I read some some scholars and, and commentators and historians and and tr- and look and, and try to learn from them on the the, gr- the grammar of of the original language and look at the structure and the, and the repetition and the setting and looking for how is Mark going to show us Jesus in a grand way again so it's like at some point during the study which some point during the week, it always feels like the the churn cycle of a washing machine. It always feels like that at some point. And and then somewhere along the line, the the door kind of pops open and it's, there was a red sock. There's the red, this isn't just simple white shirts and white socks in this story. There's something in here that begins to color it all. These two stories back to back are, are chock full of of keywords and subtle phrases that that color the whole story it shows us Jesus in a in a much grander way than just the simple facts this is a story of a miracle a grand miracle in the gentile wilderness it certainly is that but but it's but it's also more this is a story that's that's contrasted by religious opposition to Jesus again, but but it's certainly more than that. There's more to it. There's there's a series of key words that that color these stories and and, and open our eyes to see it. So let's let's look at um, let's look at the key words, the the, ch- the word choices that Mark uses to color these stories. If you write in your Bibles, or uh, if you have one of the Mark journals, um, circle these as we go through, and and it'll it'll help remind you what we're looking at. The first word in uh, chapter 8, verse 2, I have compassion. That word, compassion, Notice that Jesus initiates in here. He he sees the need of the crowd and he initiates and he uses very personal language. I, speaking of personally, of himself, have compassion. And this, this Mark's choice, this Greek word that that Mark chooses to describe Jesus' compassion is only ever used to describe Jesus' compassion. Mark used it in chapter 6 to describe Jesus' compassion for the crowd of 5,000. And Jesus uses it here to describe his own compassion. It's an old, rare word. It's weighted with meaning that's been carefully chosen because this word is colored with blood. The word compassion in the Greek finds its root in the priestly activity in, in the Jewish sacrificial system. The very root of the word simply means vital organs. And it would include the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidney. These organs were, were given to the priests before they would offer the animal as, an, as a sacrifice on the altar. The word came to mean a deep deep emotional response in the core of your being, the kind of response, the kind of compassion that you feel physically. So when Jesus is describing his own compassion for the people around him, he connects himself with the long history of a sacrificial system, the, re- the redemptive and atoning action that was built, in, built into the God-given laws. God given laws that had ever since the time of Moses, ever since that first Passover in Egypt, the sacrificial system proclaimed this that for atonement, for rescue, for redemption, blood must be shed. This colors the story. He's not not simply feeling sorry for people that are hungry and giving them some bread. Jesus is not just a wonder worker. His compassion is rooted deeper in himself and deeper into history. So he's he's beginning to, to pull back the curtain. This is even more profound when you consider where he is. A desolate Gentile region, a Gentile wilderness with people who are from far away, he says. But his response is deeply rooted in God's redemptive action for his people. And it tells us again, there's no one who's too far off. There's no one who's too far off. So, what, what prompted this gut wrenching compassion from Jesus? Continuing in verse 2 I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. They have been with me, they remained. A direct translation would be remained. Jesus recognizes that their, their staying here with him is intentional despite the circumstances. It's a desolate place. They're a long way from nowhere and this crowd has intentionally remained with Jesus when it was probably smarter and probably more strategic and probably more responsible to go home yesterday. But they've stayed here with him. They've come a long way to be with him. They stayed the night and then they stayed the next night until they ran out of food. So do you you see what this crowd of people has done? They've stayed with Jesus until return was no longer possible. They would faint along the way if they left now. They couldn't imagine being anywhere else. So Jesus calls his disciples to come to him and he expresses his compassion and his concern for these people. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered, how can one feed this, these people with bread here in this desolate place? Remember that in these middle chapters in Mark, bread continues to show up. Bread continues to be this recurring theme. So Jesus turns to his disciples, initiates with them, calls them to himself, and, and, and their response is, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed where we are, but I don't, There's no. we don't have bread for this many people. We don't have, there's no way that this could be done. As, as a side note, and, and this gets us to our, our, um, our third um, key word, but as, as a bit of a side note, this has been historically the primary objection to this, to this story. Is surely the disciples remembered Jesus doing this before. Surely they would have remembered that he had done a miracle like this before. So it seems like, it seems silly that they, they wouldn't remember this. But if we look, and, and as we've looked, Jesus' miracles, his miraculous works have always come as, as completely unexpected and a mind-blowing thing to the people around him. So I think in here, there's an honest, just in-the-moment response from the disciples. They've been out there for three days, too. There's been quite a lot of time that's passed since chapter six, really. If you look at it, they, they they've they've been out there. That literally, the question they ask is, who can possibly feed this many people? The third keyword is satisfy in in verse four, uh, in the ESV. It's translated, "How can one feed this people with bread?" the core root in there is, is satisfy. How can one feed enough, feed to satisfaction? How could someone feed until full this many people in this such, a, such a faraway, desolate place? And then if you jump down to verse eight, and they ate and were satisfied. This, this connecting point colors the story. This is no less than a miracle. There's no doubt about that, but it's more than. This story answers massive existential question. We're out here on our own in a desolate place, in the wilderness, in the desert, in a foreign land, far away from home with people who are from far away, with people who have always been from far away. There's no rivers out here. There's no cropland out here. There's no marketplace out here. In a world that's been dried up by the curse of sin, among people long ago cast out of the garden, people who are a lot more like us than not, Mark invites us to ask that question. Who can possibly satisfy? Who can satisfy? Possibly satisfy our hunger and our thirst and our longing. The story of a miraculous feeding in the desert colored with key phrases makes that answer self-evident. Who can satisfy? Jesus, only Jesus. He's the one who then acts to answer that question. Jesus defines his compassion with a weighted word, a colored word, colored with bloodshed. He recognizes the intent of the people with him to remain with him despite the circumstances and then he provides abundance in a place that creates hunger. He satisfies in circumstances that that scream scarcity In verse 9, he he sends them away. And the word Mark chooses there means released, liberated, set free. And then Jesus gets into the boat, crosses the Sea of Galilee to a place Mark calls Dalmanutha. This is near Magdala, on, on the west side now of the Sea of Galilee, south of Capernaum. And here's where we see the contrast. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Test. Circle that word, underline that word, to test, to confront, to argue, to literally create an obstacle for him. To put something in the way, a stumbling block, to lay a trap, to stand in intentional opposition to him. It's a colorful word. And Mark has used this only once before. The last time Mark used this word, Jesus was also in a desolate place, but there was no crowd that time. The last time Mark used this word for test, he was defining Satan's temptation of Jesus in chapter 1. That was a scene that was marked by violent opposition. Jesus standing on the front lines in the battle line between a horde of angry beasts and an army of angels ministering to him face to face with Satan. Face to face with the one who would love to cut him down at the knees before he's even got started. The Pharisees demand a sign from heaven to corroborate Jesus' ministry. And this is not an honest question. This does not come from a heart and a mind that would long to understand and long to know. Their motive matters. Their intent matters. They came to argue. They came to question, to demand a sign. And this argumentative confrontation, this test is an assault on par with Satan's confrontation of Jesus in the wilderness. This time, in this scene In verse 11, Jesus lands on the shore and looks at the people that are coming to him. His response is different. He sighed deeply in his spirit. This word is exceedingly rare. This is the only time that this word sighed, this this Greek word is used in all of the New Testament. And really, really rare outside of Scripture even. So we're supposed to take note of that. This is not anger and frustration in that sigh. He's been angry with the Pharisees before, but this, this sigh, this core root word doesn't mean anger and frustration. And it doesn't mean compassionate empathy like his sigh with the deaf man last week. This deep, guttural, intense sigh is one of despair. Despair. It's dismay. It's a saddened disappointment over his own people who are so determined to disbelieve. So determined to oppose. So self-deceived. And then the final key word that colors this story is that there would be no sign. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign will be given to this generation. This is a strong, adamant denial of their request. A categorical refusal to bend to that demand. We, we miss this one in the translated uh, English here uh, but it's, it's, it's based in a, a phrasing that was strong in the stand your ground kind of way that would be something to the effect of if a sign must be given, I would rather die. If I must give a sign, then I'll die. You show up and accost me here at the docks. I've just arrived, demanding that I bend to you, demanding that I prove myself to you, and I'll die before I give you that sign. In this confrontation, the Pharisees are confronted with a crisis of decision because they're standing in this scene too, and it's the Son of God who looks them in the eye. It's the Son of God who responds to their demand and says, I won't prove it to you like that. What do you do? What should they do? I won't prove it to you like that. I'll die first. In a subtle way, he's making the same point as as, as when he's repeatedly commanded silence. Silence. If you only believe because of the wonders you've seen or the wonders you expect to see, you're not really believing in me. If I give you this sign, if, if, what, if your belief in me is dependent on me conforming to your demand and your definition of who I am, then your belief becomes impossible. That kind of belief is not belief in Jesus. It's belief in their own assumption. Belief in their own definition of who he is rather than in him for who he is. Saving faith, we said this last week, is absolutely and wholly dependent upon the completeness of Jesus' work at the cross. So he's saying, I won't give you the proof that you demand. I'm calling you to believe I am And to give you that proof would make faith in me impossible because your faith would be in the sign you saw, not in me. Not in the one the sign points to. And the last verse, 13, is sobering. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. He left them, standing on the shore in their determined disbelief, probably patting each other on the back that, see, he couldn't do it. See, he wouldn't do it. Just like he left Nazareth and marveled at their unbelief. The evidence has already been demonstrated. The proof has already been shown in his personal presence on earth. The demand for a sign becomes a sign itself of their disbelief. And the way Jesus denies their demand, I'd rather die than give you that sign, becomes a promise. Saving faith is absolutely wholly dependent upon the completeness of Jesus' work at the cross. I I won't meet that demand for you, but I'll die even for you. And maybe, maybe you'll believe when I walk out of the grave. The curtain is being pulled back. We're beginning to see, Jesus is beginning to reveal more clearly who he is and why he's here. Mark's gospel has always been focused on faith. Following Jesus' has been the most common way that Mark has expressed it. Following him, to be close to him, following Jesus in order to be with him, to remain with him. What we learn from these colorfully contrasted stories gets us to a place of reflecting on our own response to Jesus. Reminded me of Hebrews 12 Uh, Verse 3, the author of Hebrews writes, Consider him. Speaking of Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Turn your mind and your eyes and your heart towards him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In 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 response, in considering Jesus, who was faithful, Jesus, who went to the cross, Jesus, who endured such hostility. What we see in these stories that faith remains with Jesus even in the desolate places, even when it's unpopular, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Content in his presence. That yeah, you may look around at the desert landscape and then look at the presence of Jesus and say, where else would I go? Where else would I go? I'll remain until return is no longer possible. Faith trusts that Jesus knows your highest needs. He knows them. He sees them as the only one who's capable of satisfying them. The question the disciples ask, who can satisfy this people with bread in such a desolate place, is the type of question that we all still ask today. Is is this it? Is this all there is? It seems like there should be more. It seems like this all falls short. It seems like no matter what I get or where I go or how much, it's never enough. Who can satisfy and that only has one answer? Jesus. Only one answer to those kinds of existential questions. Faith is demonstrated not proven, but demonstrated, walked out in the simplicity of following Jesus for the long haul. Not by signs in big moments, not just in the big moments, but following Jesus in the long haul. The Pharisees stood their ground on the shore and the disciples got into the boat because that's where Jesus was. So in considering the direction and the posture of your heart. Where are you facing? Where are your feet? What direction are you pointing? Is your faith dependent on the big moment thing? Or demonstrated by the direction your feet are pointed towards Jesus and where he's going? The invitation for some is to finally bend your knees in faith. There's there's sort of an and. An, an enacted parable in that final scene. The act of following Jesus demonstrated by the disciples who turn their back against the shore as they turn their face towards Jesus and follow him into the boat. Repentance and belief acting simultaneously. And this has been Jesus' message since chapter 1, verse 14. Repent and believe. If you're turning towards him, you're turning your back to the shore. Getting in the boat, and if he's going to a desert place, okay, I'll go with him. If he's going out into that storm, okay, I'm just going to be with him. I'm going to be in the boat with him. If that's where he's going, that's where I'm going to go. And he may refuse to answer all of your questions, and you're confronted then with that same crisis of decision. It's the Son of God who leans in, who looks closely, who draws your heart and says, I won't prove it to you that way. But I died on the cross and rose again for you. He knows your desperate circumstances and knows what you and I know in the deepest core of us in those quiet, dark moments that I don't have what it takes to get out of this cursed place. I don't have what it takes to get out of here on my own. It requires rescue. It requires redemption. It requires one who comes in to save And the Son of God says, I won't prove it to you the way you want. But I proved it to you on the cross. But I went to the cross for you. But I died for you. But I rose for you. So follow me. So follow. So turn towards me. There is... There's a lot in those stories, a lot we didn't cover, lots of detail. But these colorful words make it so that we can't just look at these stories as a simple miracle and Jesus handling some opposition. He's displaying himself again as God. God. Who meets his people in the desolate places. Who has always done so. Who provides abundantly in places that would create hunger. This world we live in that's under and pressed down by the curse since Genesis 3 creates in us hunger because we're separated from God. We're not living life the way we were designed to live in communion with him in the presence of God. It creates in us that hunger and nothing satisfies it except one. That question we continually answer that maybe the next thing will do it. Maybe the next thing will do it. Maybe the next thing will do it. Maybe it. Maybe it won't. The answer to that question only has one answer. It is Jesus who came to earth. Entering humanity. God who put on flesh. God revealing himself to us in terms that we can understand to rescue. That his compassion for you in your place where you are right now in life is deep and guttural and connected to all of redemptive history as God is rescuing people to himself. So the simplicity of the response, that's all we have is to turn to him, to turn to him, which means turning away from ourself, from our own abilities, from all the other things that we've tried to satisfy our hunger with. And in turning to him, that simplicity is what he's asked of us. It's what he's inviting you to do. And in that, he begins to remake, to renew, to push back the curse of sin in our own hearts and turn us into little images of him in our world. And it tips to purpose and mission.